Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single, coming at you live from a very annoyingly cold and rainy and windy Saturday in Brooklyn. Um, today's chat, I'm mostly just going to take your questions, but as is often the case, I have sort of an opening spiel. It's about a new paper about youth uh, social gender transition that everyone's talking about. Um, Two of the authors, one of the authors is Christina Olson. She won a MacArthur Grant uh, for her work on this issue. She studies a cohort of kids who socially transitioned uh, early in life, like well before puberty. Um, the new article is called Gender Identity Five Years After Social Transition. It's published in Pediatrics. Anyone can read it. It's an open access situation. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very glad these kids are being followed. Um, people are taking this study even though the authors caution against doing this and a uh, New York times article by Azeen Garashi, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, like properly cautions people against doing that. They're immediately going to add it to the sort of like culture war for lack of a better term over the question of whether young kids who identify with another gender sometimes switch back in time um, without transitioning. Uh, I think the evidence we have suggests that they pretty often do. I, I no longer put a percentage on it because I think it's too hard to tell. The studies showing that kids appear to desist uh, from gender dysphoria, that's sort of the, the term of art, uh, mostly come from clinical settings where you have kids who are brought to a gender clinic for whatever reason, and they're examined over time. And then you can, if you get the right data, you can figure out who still identifies as trans or who still has gender dysphoria later, a few years later, ideally. Uh, those are overlapping categories, but they're not the same. Being trans and having gender dysphoria, a lot of the controversy over this stems from people sort of conflating those two or not understanding that they're different. Um, I can elaborate on that if it's not clear. Anyone can just ask me. But um, Olson's cohort is different. This is a cohort, a non-clinical sample uh, taken from sort of group support groups of kids who were allowed to socially transition by their parents. And it starts in 2013. I think the cohort, or the slice of it from this study, kids who transitioned between 2013 and 2017. Um, and she found that, she and her team found that five years later, the kids still identified as trans, which is useful information. It would certainly be, um, you know, if it went the other way and, and it turned out all these kids detransitioned, that would be very surprising to me. Uh, the question is whether you can use this as evidence of the broader question of whether kids are likely to change their mind over time. And I sort of think you can't really. I, I think parents are a pretty big factor here. Um, a cohort of parents who were transitioning their kids that young at that point in time, 2013, 2014, 2015, it's just a very specific cohort of parents. And you can't necessarily extrapolate outcomes to other types of parents. I, I also – it jumped out at me that um, – let me pull up the line. Uh, this study did not assess whether participants met criteria for the DSM-5 diagnosis of gender dysphoria in children. Many parents in this study did not believe that such diagnoses were either ethical or useful. So to me, that tells you something about the group of parents involved. If they don't think it's even ethical or useful to give their get their kids a, you know, uh, assessed for gender dysphoria, which is if you follow sort of the letter of the WPATH playbook of, of the trans health playbook, that's why as kids socially transitions because they have gender dysphoria. I think a subset of parents who, who many of them don't even think it's ethical to get their kid diagnosed. It you know it does tell you something specific about maybe the politics of of these parents. Um, that doesn't mean you can throw out this 
study or that there's nothing useful about it. It just means you can't extrapolate the results, both because it's a non-clinical sample and because the parents have very specific views. Now, people say the same thing about studies on so-called rapid onset gender dysphoria, a couple studies by Lisa Lippman, because her sample is parents who are um, skeptical that their kids are really trans or, or their trans identity is durable. People, it's totally fair to point out that um, that could have some effect on the outcome, but same deal. I don't think you can throw it out entirely. I think it provides some useful information, but it, it's like we're putting together this pretty complicated puzzle from all these different studies of different samples in different situations and there's a real risk of apples to oranges or like apples to kangaroo comparisons. Um, I think I'm running out of stuff to say about this. So folks should definitely jump in the queue if they have questions or comments about this or anything else. Uh, what, one of my frustrations is just that people are really inconsistent about which um, sort of flaws in the evidence they'll apply to which situations. So like a, someone will make a complaint about a study and then in the next breath cite, another study pointing in the other direction that has the exact same flaw. I think people are pretty opportunistic about that. <laughs> it's like an asymmetric appeal to evidence type of thing where like you will accept weaker evidence that points in the direction you favor than evidence that points in the direction you don't favor. Um, I just continue to think it's very bad that this has now become such a culture war football because like I, I just think these are – genuinely difficult questions. I, I've written a lot less about childhood transition than about like adolescent transition and hormones and blockers. Um, I, I will say, I think it's a little bit disingenuous to treat this as like, you know, a nothing step that's totally reversible because if you, if a kid transitions at seven or eight, it, it's going to be like a, a snap and then they're going to be approaching puberty and you'll have to choose either. They're going to be a girl who has a male puberty or they're going to go on puberty blockers or they're going to detransition. One of those three things has to happen. So I, I just continue to think that there's like a false binary here where either, either a kid socially transitions right away or they're being horribly wronged. I, I wish parents were like a little bit more... The thing I always hear from gender clinicians, um, or I did when I spoke, I did way more interviews with them like a couple of years ago, is like they try to instill uh, in both kids and parents some sense of like patience and open-mindedness and flexibility as their kids sort of charts their gender journey and this endless focus on like, you need to be this or you need to be that we need to decide right now there's going to be suicide often doesn't apply and often isn't helpful uh, for making these sorts of decisions. So yeah, Colin, Colin on Colin. What is up? Hey Jesse, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Um, I'll keep it. I'll keep it adolescent and trans. Um, I was listening to uh, TGIF with, Katie and um, God, her name's escaping me. Nellie, Nellie Bowles. Yeah. And K Katie was talking about uh, how Marcy Bowers uh, pretty pretty much came out and said that um, kids who were put on blockers and transitioned as adolescents um, really just lo lose the ability to come to orgasm once they're in adults. And how that has kind of shifted the way she looks at uh, childhood transition as far as consent goes, because like an eight-year-old can't really conceptualize what an orgasm is, and therefore can't really can't really consent to to losing that ability. I was wondering um, if you had any thoughts on on that and, and or how that impacts um, your thoughts on on 
uh, youth gender transition? Yeah, this actually came up yesterday. Um, I'll just read. I know it's great audio reading tweets, but um, Chase Strangio tweeted, Chase Strangio is like the ACLU is a trans man and the ACLU's main voice on this stuff. Um, he said, what is it here? They, he, him, or they, them. Uh, he said, one of the most jarring, one of the most jarring arguments in anti-trans discourse lately is, quote, this treatment will prevent adolescents from experience from experience sexual pleasure, end quote. In addition to being almost entirely untrue, coming from the people who literally don't believe in sexual pleasure, it's a lot to stomach. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about there um, because gender-critical feminists certainly believe in sexual pleasure, and there's some of the people raising the alarms about that. I retweeted and, and basically said, untrue how? Well, I did this is a direct quote. Untrue how? Experts are open about how little we know about kids who get blocked and then go on hormones. This post from 2016 features stars in the field, and I'm not aware of any major advances since. Doesn't mean kids shouldn't transition, but honesty is quite important. And I, I included a 2016 um, comments section from a Facebook post where these big names in the field are all ad- acknowledging, we don't know. We do, we're, there's no uh, research on this subject of orgasms who adult, uh, orgasms in adults who transition medically as children without first going through the puberty of their natal sex. It sounds like Marcy Bowers went from um, we don't know to she's pretty confident they can't, but at the very least, this is up in the air, and I absolutely think it should be part of the discussion. And the idea that you, you're going to put kids on a pretty big medical path that will pretty quickly become irreversible if all goes well, if you've properly diagnosed them, and not talk about the fact that they might not be able to have a normal sex life, which is very important to most people, I think that's ridiculous and tells you that this is a fucked up conversation. I also think that there might be some situations where a kid is so devastated by dysphoria and there's just no other good option that you might take that trade off. But I'm with you that, that it needs to be discussed. And I, I, what really annoys me, um, I was talking about this with a journalist who I think does a good job covering this. What pisses me off is the flippancy with which activists and journalists cover this. They, act like none of this is a big deal like everyone knows what they're doing there's basically no long-term outcome data the data we have comes from a totally different clinic in a totally different setting in the netherlands so um there's all these question marks and i I think it's pretty messed up to ignore those question marks because you're talking about kids and developing bodies so that's my rant on that yeah i mean sexual function isn't everything in life but the fact that Chase Strangio's response to that almost makes me feel like there's there's more there than, than he would let on by his yeah. of it or his demonization of discussion discussing it um, because the faster you can shut it down probably the fa- faster you can dismiss something that's real. I think this is yeah, and I think that's been the tactic. I don't think it's really working anymore. I think some of the journalism is getting better, including in the Times, and I think it's been hard to ignore the stuff coming out of Europe, where like Finland and Sweden and especially have like real concerns about this and are really scaling back access to blockers and hormones. So I think we're trending toward a better discussion. I just think like for the last God four ish years in the States, it's just been uh, impossible to talk about this. So I'm glad things are opening up a little bit. Yep. Hopefully we come yep. out of it. Thanks Colin. Cool. Thank you. Pongo two, not Pongo one. Uh, hey, can you hear me? Yeah. How's it going? Hey. Uh, yeah. So, um, I'm a little bit late to the party with the whole Chris Rufo thing, but uh, your uh, previous call was at an inconvenient time. Um, do you read Sarah Hader's Substack? 
Uh, not usually, no. I mean, I know who she is, and I, I, I know I've seen some stuff of hers that I've liked. Oh, her last, her last one was actually about that, which was convenient because she said what I was going to say a lot better than I could. Um, so, yeah, I think that basically I think, I think both. There's a, hey, there, is there, there's a lot of like wind or otherwise mic noise. Is there any way to address that? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. A truck just drove by. Um, this may not be ideal timing for this actually, but, uh. Anyway, uh, I'll just refer you to that, and you can check it out. Okay, you think you think she has a good take on the on the Rufo stuff? Uh, yeah, basically. Okay, her most recent Substack post. All right, uh, thanks. I appreciate right. the recommendation. I'll check it out. Yeah. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye, Klaus. What is up? All right. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um, I this is not about the previous subject, but. It's about the book. Is that all right? Can we discuss anything? Yeah. Uh, okay. In the quick fix, there was this really good chapter about grit and how it ends up relating to conscientiousness. And I'm wondering if you have a theory for why the big five is so not particularly popular in the mainstream discourse when there's so much interest in like, self-identity in self-expression why people turn to so many other things rather than the one that seems to be the most valid and predictable like you don't see people's big five figures in their twitter bio or something like that so i'm wondering why it to me doesn't seem to be as popular as it should be given the data behind it that's interesting um I could see how like stuff like more pseudoscientific stuff like Myers Briggs is maybe more evocative and gets people's attention more. Grit gained a lot of um, mileage out of the fact that it was like a new idea and there was a TED talk associated with it. For what it's worth, when I was like a, a full time science writer and editor, I, I felt like personality psychology and the Big Five came up fairly often. They're definitely not viral ideas, but but I don't I don't I didn't feel like they were unpopular. I agree with you that there's like sexier offshoots and and slightly more bunk versions that get more attention but i feel like i wrote about them a lot for what it's worth and that that like if you google you know new york times or washington post and big five you'll get a fair amount of coverage right but i mean kind of the average person turns to and i'm not just talking about myers-briggs per se but you've seen a rise in people kind of identifying with various uh, maybe kind of psychological disorders, self-diagnosed. Yeah. And to me, I mean, for me, I gained a lot from looking into the big five and I think I learned a lot about myself from it. And I think uh, people, it, I mean, people go to things like psychological neuroses. I know you've written a, a couple articles about how people kind of use their sexuality, like allosexual, when that's just really kind of a personality quirk. So it just seems kind of odd to me that it's not popular outside, like, people who really study psychology and personality. Yeah, well, but I, I think in this case, there's definitely some online communities, and this is more true broadly on the left, where you get – um, excuse me, tried to um, very quickly hit the mute button before I coughed. The You get a little bit of mileage and currency out of being quote-unquote oppressed. This is not an original point. If you put mental illnesses, even if they're self-diagnosed, in your Twitter account, um, it gets you a weird sort of currency because there's been this weird sort of inversion along those lines where we 
we still apply labels to people and still judge people on their labels rather than their personhood. We just do it in the reverse way where the more oppressed categories, the better. I obviously don't like this, but uh, uh, big five, there's, there's no real opportunity to do that, that with the big five. Like you could be like, Oh, I'm super high in neuroticism, but it just doesn't have the same oomph to it that it does to diagnose yourself with like Asperger's or, or anxiety disorder. And I'm obviously not meaning to imply that anyone who mentions their mental illness is self-diagnosed and doesn't really have it. But does that make sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, I kind of have a theory on my own. I mean, you can cut me off if I'm talking too much, but um, I think part of it is it's kind of hard to read the big five in a neutral way. So if you look at your Myers-Briggs, you might just say, well, you're an ENTF and I'm an INTR or whatever. But I think when you look at a big five result and you see like your agreeableness very low, it's kind of hard not to read that as like, oh, I suck at agreeableness. Yeah. Whereas with other things, it's like it's a mere difference, whereas the big five kind of feels like it's judging you. Does that make yeah. sense? I, li- I like that theory. That makes sense to me. All right. That's all I got. Thanks, Klaus. Thank you. Tactical procrastinating. What's up? Good name. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, so I guess you uh, interviewed a lot of trans kids for your uh, – uh, penultimate article i've interviewed some trans kids i've spent more time interviewing clinicians than trans kids per se okay um i guess it just seems to take a large space of our discourse that that is for sure <laughs> right i i've met one trans person and you know had a reasonable discussion with them and they don't seem to like want to kill me or some of the the crazier Twitter things. This is, but this is a problem with like any group and social media. Like you know, Black Twitter, as it's called, bears no resemblance to the average Black American or trans Twitter or disabled Twitter. I, I just did a newsletter about this about how. For any one of these groups, the folks you encounter on Twitter are going to be, on average, more educated, wealthier, and further to the left than the rest of that population. And I think that really accounts for a lot of Twitter discourse and for the way people are sometimes confused about what different marginalized groups want. I mean, even just something like – the example I used in my article is police abolition, which is not popular among black Americans, but it is more popular – on black Twitter or on other liberal Twitters because you have wealthier, further to the left, more educated people. And that's the group. Those are the groups that are more into police abolition. So I think there's like a real class issue uh, here that can explain why, you know, if, if you meet a trans person out in the world, they're very likely to just be a normal person versus online. Things are maybe a little bit more heated and politicized. Yeah. Um, is there a reason why we can't organize on class? Uh, if I had the answer to that, I'd be, I would be very famous. I, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of the present obsession with other sorts of identity labels makes that really, really difficult because we're told, and what do I know about like working class organizing? But, you know, imagine you work in a factory, a diverse factory, and you're told that you should spend a lot of time thinking about how the, the white people who work on the floor have privileges the black people lack, which is true in a certain sense, in a very approximate sense, 
but you guys are all working class factory workers. And, and I think this is the argument a lot of like lefties and Marxists make is that you need to organize along class lines and, and it's divisive to do otherwise. So I think, um, I think a lot of stuff like gets clearer when you realize who gets to decide how we talk about injustice. And it is overwhelmingly people from privileged backgrounds who likely have different interests and different ways of looking at the world than, you know, people who struggle to make a living. Yeah, I'm unionized, so I'm doing all right. But uh, thanks, thanks for uh, talking. Thanks, Tactical. What's up, Usarian? Howdy, hey. Jesse. Um, so I actually wanted to to call in yesterday, but uh, I had a, I was at work A and B. I had a terrible internet connection, um, and it seems to me the topic of yesterday and the topic of today there's a Venn diagram which they overlap, and the overlap is the thing that's sort of obsessing me these days, which is the, <clears throat> the problem of confirmation bias, right. Of deciding, I mean, the fact that it was so obvious that the New York times writers wanted to link, uh, Musk's position on, uh, free speech, which they considered to be problematic with his time in South Africa. And they did it. And it was such a nakedly, stupid and self-defeating way that, you know, what, what could possibly explain that? And my concern, and it's like, if you look at the sub stacks I follow, like it's, it's you and Katie, and you could probably extrapolate, oh, what a surprise. There's Andrew Sullivan, there's Barry Weiss, there's Wes Yang, right? It's, um, so I'm, I am painfully aware that I'm in my own particular kind of echo chamber, but it just seems to me that there's now we live in an environment where there's so much information that it really people couldn't possibly be expected to keep up with all of it. And instead it just gives, it just leads to confirmation bias all the way down. And I don't know if that's a hypothesis that resonates with you or if you have any thoughts on that, but it, it's something that is really worrying. No, I mean, it's something that worries me a lot, especially as things get more and more balkanized and the landscape is like, Paywalled substacks and paywalled newspapers—it's a big problem, and um, it's also a problem as a writer because I don't want to be writing the exact same stuff on certain issues that like Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan's writing about. But I don't—I don't really know how to get out of it, and I've, I think I've said this before, but I just see the fracturing getting worse and worse because you can just look at the left and, and how much disagreement there is on the left on certain basic factual matters. Uh, it's not a good sign that, that there's so little trusted authority and that there's so such sort of epistemic messiness. So I'm, I'm worried about all that stuff. And I think you're right that a lot of it does stem from confirmation bias. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, on the flip side of that too is, is audience capture, right. And people responding to incentives. And that's the only way I can make sense of say, you know, like James Lindsay, somebody who several years ago, I, I, had a good deal of respect for. And now I'm just like, he's, he's batshit insane. And the there's same unfortunately thing. a lot of James Lindsay's. And yeah, I think that audience captured, um, I think it was Sam Harris who coined it. It's really useful. And it's another thing that like, as a writer, I want to keep in mind because I'm hearing from a very specific subset of my audience and I'm not hearing from sort of the more, you know, moderate or busy or less political ones. Yeah, exactly. And it was, you know, when you and Katie, I called you, you know, about the, the Florida bill and when you guys were talking about it and it, it was sort of a slightly thrilling to be like, Hey, here's something that I actually disagree with Jesse and Katie about, and I can, I can talk to them about it. And 
you know, I'm, you know, solidly middle-aged and I'm at the point in my life where like changing my mind feels good, right? Because it feels like I'm getting closer to the truth and just having that realization that everybody's wrong about something. They just, they just don't know. Yeah. It. Anyway, it's, so what I appreciate, what I, what I think, what the, the, the thinkers and the readers that I, they follow have in common is I think you guys are more interested in what is true than what is convenient for a particular ideology. And it's that sort of intellectual uh, in, in, integrity that I respect and I look for. So I appreciate it. Appreciate the call and the kind of words. Jane K. What is up? Good morning, hey. Jesse. Um, I kind of, what I wanted to talk about is really is fitting in with what the other people were talking about as well. I'm a school teacher and it's conference season. Um, and I'm a foreign language teacher. I teach German and I've been going to conferences every week. They're all online now. So they're very convenient. And last week, um, all these neo pronouns popped up as part of, cause everything this season is diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and it's, it's like, just when I think we're cresting the wave, it's like more crazy comes out. And these, uh, pronouns are, I mean, there were two presenters, one added one pronoun as an option. And then the next presenter for her 15 minutes or their 15 minutes, I'm not really sure, um, added, uh, three, four, five, six, seven additional, uh, uh, you know, uh, third person singular pronouns, zir, hin, zif, zire, zai, they, which is our pronoun and just simply X. And so as I was in the conference, I, uh, you know, I kind of got on uh, WhatsApp and I asked my, I took pictures of things. And I asked my, a friend of mine in Germany and I said, is this happening? Are people doing this? He goes, I've never, they're idiots. And I've asked, even a school teacher I know lives in, who's German, lives in Germany. And he doesn't know what I'm talking about either. And it's, um, it's just so interesting because if you sort of, you know, you question it or I, I've started to push back a little bit. But if you kind of question it, the answer that comes back is always, well, don't you want everyone to feel included? And you go, well, if you could please explain the etymology of these pronouns, there is none. It, someone sat down and must, must have authored these pronouns, one very unique and small person, and now it's got this big, broad, you know, um, broadcast with it. And it's, it's, it's either this is the death knell, it's going to be so ridiculous and so broadened that people are going to it's going to die or it's, it, it's just going to keep taking over and there's nothing you can do or say about it. Um, so for me, I'll, one last thing I'll just say, for me in the classroom, one of my friends told me what you could do is he heard and he asked his girlfriend. So it's, again, this is not, you know, common. It's not abroad in Germany. He said, you could say air with a, then a star sign and Z at Z with a little bit of a glottal stop because maybe you could try that. So, I only do it if the students ask me, but it's become a major discussion with not just a German with Spanish, French. I see teachers discussing it all the time. It's reifying something kind of, I think, a little nuts. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I just I don't I encounter a lot of this stuff online. But if if you'd ask me for my opinion on like the uh, pronoun multiplication, uh, proliferation, I, I from where I sit, it sort of died down. Like I remember five or six years ago, there was some dumb document the New York uh, City Department of Health circulated with like I don't know fifteen or sixteen gender identities. But it, they, a lot of them weren't. It, it they didn't even know the difference between like a sexual orientation and gender identity. So it makes together all this different stuff. I just I've seen very few people actually identifying with 
neo pronouns other than they, which I guess isn't a neo pronoun. I think part of it is a lot of like professional liberal places hire um, DEI consultants and trainers who are really out there because there's no quality control in that space. So the you know uh, National Association of Language Teachers or whatever is not really hip, and they think that to be inclusive, they need to give a a uh, presentation on neo pronouns, but like no one, I'd be surprised if there was actually anyone that many people asking for that, or that there is like much of an audience for that kind of talk. I, I think a lot of it's just like how weird and grifty that industry has gotten. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I'm going to Germany this summer. I'm going to Leipzig. I will. Find yes. Better herausfinden. It's in Bretzeln for me. Thank you, Jane. Yes, I will. <laughs> Shana, what's up? Oh, howdy. Am I coming in yep. okay, Jesse? You are. I have my headphones. Okay. I just wanted to um, <clears throat> kind of, I guess, reassure you and, and maybe even other callers or listeners that you do have like a normie audience out there. And I will gladly represent that monolith, though, even though everyone has their own viewpoints and and, and quirks. So, um, I mean, just to, to reassure you that there are people that are, are listening and that on paper I, sh- I shouldn't, you know, I, I think I'd come across as fairly conservative sounding if, if you were to look at my own stats on paper. But I appreciate viewpoint diversity. I appreciate dialogue and um, reasoning and, and respect. So I, I just feel like to reassure <laughs> that there is, there, that you do have an audience um, outside of, of specific circles and that are listening and like to be challenged and like to be exposed to new areas as well. And um, if I may, I wanted to comment on the blocked and reported episode that you just released, I think, this morning. And sure. I think, um, you know, the end of the episode, uh, your and Katie's comments regarding um, Trace, you know, proves... I think it proves why you have a, a loyal audience, uh, uh, at least for the podcast as well, because of that level of insight and integrity and acknowledgement that, you know, we are going to stand up for for our own employee here, whether we believe a mistake was made or not, we'll acknowledge it, but that we still stand behind him and I just I you know frankly think that's beautiful in a lot of ways so just wanted Thank to you, give Shana. you a shout I'm, out there I really appreciate that that's very kind of uh, you just saying I'm glad we have a normal audience which I think we do yeah so just keep doing what you're doing uh, don't get discouraged I know it's easy to do that and I know I'm a boring um, eternal optimist but sometimes you need those in your life too Appreciate it, Shana. Really nice of you. All right. All right. Thanks. Lucas is going to have to be the last call, unfortunately. Sorry, the rest of the folks in the queue, but there'll be another one of these very soon. Lucas, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Hope you're doing well. Um, I you. called in a, while, a little while ago and mentioned I had an armchair theory I wanted to run past sure. you. Um, yeah, so it actually has to pertain to the big five, so I'm glad someone brought it up a little bit earlier. Um I was recently listening to Sam Harris. He had David Buss on, who wrote the book uh, 
why men behave badly. Anyway, one of the points they made, it's more of a hypothesis really than a theory right now, but that modern societies kind of self-select for psychopathy almost, where psychopaths or people that are predilected on manipulating others can kind of get away with it because they can always keep moving environments, etc., etc. Um, my kind of armchair theory, and I was wondering if you would agree with this or not, but uh, kind of, at least in the West, I grew up in North America, in the suburbs, and I think there's a lot of self-selection for high high neuroticism and high agreeableness, and I think this plays out a lot online, where everyone needs to agree about the right thing right now, and everyone needs to do, and it's just like this obsession with being agreeable and making sure you're doing the right thing. And I think it gets feigned as the conscientiousness when really, I think, I, I, I don't know who I am to say, well, if you were really conscientious, then, you know, we would coming, we would be coming at this through a class lens instead of a racial lens or et cetera. So I don't want to put too much of my own bias in there, but I really do think at least growing up, the agreeableness and was just the, end goal and i think that's where a lot of the dei um at least the bad stuff kind of gets its main ethos is like everyone needs to be agreeable here here as opposed to um i guess disagreeable on that spectrum and i think a lot of the podcasters that everyone has mentioned at least so far they tend to be a bit more disagreeable and i think they um, kind of see the value in having open conversations. But uh, yeah, anyway, I'll kind of let you weigh in there instead of continuing to ramble. No, I mean, it's an interesting theory. I feel a little bit unqualified to judge it. I, I think the DEI stuff, there's the most popular theories are, to me, are not really drenched in agreeableness. There's a lot of like confrontational stuff. I think sure. the people targeted... <laughs> Like the the average reader of a Robin D'Angelo book is probably pretty high in neuroticism and agreeableness. If we're going to reduce people to Big Five stuff, because they're right, really sure. trying to do the right thing and to be nice and to be inclusive, and I think that makes it maybe a little bit easier to manipulate them. I think a lot of what you're saying about society selecting for um, this or that trait is definitely true in settings like Twitter. And you can get away with behavior right. on Twitter you could never get away with in real life because it would get you ousted from your social group, but it gets – it rewards you on um, in a Twitter ecosystem. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, about, I really did more so social media, yeah. And just yeah. at least anecdotally growing up, it really was – and I guess this also tie, ties into like the Let Grow movement for kids and stuff instead of like – going to the nearest authority figure, whether that be a parent or a supervisor or something like that, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, I appreciate yeah. the call. I'm going I'm to listen to that interview between Buss and uh, Harris for sure. Yeah. It was a little while ago and I bought the book recently and it's really interesting. And, you know, he acknowledges sex differences and why they're important in understanding. Uh, yeah. How the genders react to. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'll let you go. I know you have to head out now, but uh, yeah, thanks for taking the call. Thanks Lucas. Um, all right, we got to wrap it up there. Ben and Gus, there's only two of you. So if you join, the next time I do one of these, if you join, I'll bump you to the front. Let me send myself a note to mention that. Um, next call in. So everyone else, thank you guys for listening. This was a really good chat. Um, it's happy we got some good numbers despite very short notice. 
really, really good questions, really good thoughts. So as always, I would just ask you to um, spread the word about this show and about my other work if you like it. You, The episode of Blocked and Reported going up Monday is about this crazy drama on the medievalist Twitter that's like hard to explain. I think you'll like it. If you want access now, you can become a, a premium subscriber at blockedandreported.org, but no pressure, of course. It's a soft sell. But I hope the rest of you guys have a great I hope the rest of you. I hope all of you guys have a great weekend and uh, go Celtics. Bye.